Okay, let's Romans 1 and Romans 15 one more time. In fact, this is part three of something I've entitled a Christological reading and exhortation. The method I've chosen for studying Romans, especially in the midweek, is the pincer strategy, which is approaching this epistle from both flanks, pressing toward the center, as you know. So that's what we're continuing to do, Romans 1.16 and 15.1. I wanted to reiterate, and the nail needs one more hammer blow here, so I want to over these two passages one more time so that we can get these things established. Before we get started, please remember it's that time already to turn your clocks ahead for Sunday. So that means one less hour of sleep Saturday night, which means I have to yell a lot louder on Sunday mornings. So I will do that. Let's take a couple of moments, as we usually do, for Bible class, for silent preparation. Oh, we also want to, Paul and Colleen are here. Do you, you guys still need workers for the nursery? Workers for the nursery, there's Paul and Colleen right there. See them after and say, I cheerfully would gladly do that and volunteer. And where there's a need... The Lord fills the need with special gifts, and he'll give you a nudge if it's you, and obey him. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to celebrate your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, through the Word and through the Spirit. We pray that the Word will proceed forth with clarity, with the power to edify and build up, and most of all, that it will proceed forth with the power to advance your purpose in our lives and your purpose in this age. We're grateful for the opportunity to study this epistle of Paul to the Romans in particular because therein we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of the crucified and the risen Savior. So may we live our lives in the light of his countenance and live outside of occupation with ourselves and preoccupation with the details of life and live that life that's life indeed, the newness of life that's available to us as believers in Jesus Christ at this time in history especially. We thank you for this privilege in his name. Amen. Romans one sixteen and 17 happens to be pretty much the thesis statement of this entire epistle. Paul the Apostle is speaking, and leading up to verse 16, we have his obligation in verse 14, where he says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Throughout Romans, we see this categories of really put together by human beings. When you have the wise and the foolish, it's usually those who consider themselves to be wise that call others the foolish. And the Greeks had a word for non-Greeks, and that was barbarians. And there was division between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome. And Paul, through the preaching of the gospel, demolishes those divisions. He destroys those factions. He brings to an end 
the competitive desire for believers to seek for superior prestige and honor, to measure themselves by themselves, to compare themselves with themselves, all of which is not wise, according to 2 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. And so I just wanted to pick up on that idea, especially the idea of Paul saying, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So for my part, I'm eager to, eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek Paul's already hitting the ground running, as it were, for his purpose in Romans is to bring a unity among those who are Jewish Christians and those who are Gentile Christians, and there's a rift between them, as we'll see. And then he says, because by it, that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, is our word here. The word in the Greek is apocalypto. It's A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-T-O, apocalypto, soft breathing, accent here. We get our word, of course, apocalypse from that. And this is the very key word in the Apostle Paul's writings. There's a key word also found in Romans 3.22, which is sort of like it, but it's thanarao. Greek looks like this, P-H-A-N-E-R, Omicron O, Omega O, Phanera O, means to be manifested. To be apocalypsed is to be shockingly displayed. And I needn't remind you that that word apocalypse is terribly misused in our culture today. I've even heard it misused in the news media today. It does not mean something of a worldwide end-time destruction. It's quite the opposite here. The righteousness of God that it reveals apocalyptically is Jesus Christ himself in his universally saving significance. And that's what's being apocalypsed. The righteousness of God is not something that God is as much as it is something that he does in this case. God's righteousness, according to Psalm 22:31, is what he does. Here we're going to find in Romans and fanned out throughout Romans that the righteousness of God is a saving act of God in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we already know that God has made him, Christ, to be righteousness for us. Christ to be righteousness for us. For us. In the big 10.4 of Romans 10.4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Or we could even say he is the not termination, but the consummation of the law as righteousness. Righteousness is not Torah or the law. Righteousness is Jesus Christ. God has made him not law, not adherence to the law. Not law works. He has made Christ himself to be for us righteousness and sanctification, wisdom, and our total redemption. More and more reasons stack up here why Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not either. Because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. Paul goes on to explain in verse 17, and this is what's inferred, I say not ashamed, because by it, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed, shockingly revealed from faith to faith, it sounds like, although it's really from faithfulness to faithfulness. Now, we've discussed this in our series called Better Call Paul, and Better Call Paul, we went into this 
and it's a very famous theological debate now. There is this word, pistis Christu, P-I-S-T-I-S-C-H-R-I-S-T-O-U, pistis Christu, the faith of Christ, or some people translate it faith in Christ. That would mean that Christ is the object of our faith. So the faith of Christ or faith in Christ, the objective, it's called, the objective genitive, and better call Paul, we discussed this. It's a huge debate, and it's an enormously significant debate among scholars. Then there is the subjective, the subjective genitive, in which the faithfulness belongs to Jesus Christ, or the faith, but pistis also means faith. The faithfulness belongs to Jesus Christ, And in Romans, that's pretty much where the accent falls, the faithfulness of Christ. That's why Ephesians 2.8 reads, for by grace you are saved through faith, and that's faithfulness, and that not of yourselves. The faith that saves is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We've got that squared away, and that's going to be demonstrated over and over again in Romans. We're only in the 31st hour, and we'll at least have 100 hours before we're done. This series, though, I'm going to go a little further than that because I think if you have this debate, there's a higher term, there's a higher answer to this, and that is what we know as the plenary genitive. The plenary genitive is when both are in view, both the faith that is in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ or our faithfulness in Christ and Christ's own faithfulness. What we have, I think, in Romans 1.17 is the gospel reveals the saving act of God in Christ from faithfulness, and that's God's faithfulness in Christ, to faithfulness, into another kind of faithfulness, which is Christ's faithfulness in us. The plenary genitive means that Pistis Christu means two things. One, the faithfulness of Christ, and two, our participation in that faithfulness by God's grace. This is the part of the gospel that should make no one ashamed. So let me look at it this way. Let's see how this translates in the Greek text. I say not ashamed, says verse 17, because by it, the gospel... The righteousness of God, which is his saving act in Christ, is shockingly revealed from faithfulness. That's God's faithfulness in Christ. To faithfulness, that's Christ's faithfulness in us, shared by us, participated in by us. And then it says, just as it is written, what does it say? The righteous one will live from faithfulness. Ek pistios, meaning from or out from faithfulness as a source. Now, what is another determining thing about this passage, and I'm trying to slow down on it because this is the key passage in Romans in one regard. The righteous one, and we've demonstrated this before in Better Call Paul, is not the believer who believes unto righteousness, but Jesus Christ, who lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness and his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, and therefore he lives. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. First Peter 3.18 makes it very clear. He, the righteous one, Christ, died for the unrighteous. That's everybody else. In Romans, as we've shown, there is a universal homardiology, which means it's demonstrated that all have sinned. There is also a universal soteriology, which means that because of Jesus Christ's act of obedience, all are justified or rectified or set right and made right with the life of Christ. I was amazed last night because I hadn't seen my grandsons for a couple of months because of things obviously going on in Florida. The last time I was with them, I gave them a verse. I said, instead of doing a Bible story, I want you to 
look at this verse, and I printed it up big, and it says, For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then I hadn't seen them for a while, and last night my grandson Cole said to me, Papa, I remembered the verse you gave me. It was like way back in December. And I said, what? And he said, as in Adam all die, in Jesus all will be made alive. Talk about making your day. And so next time I'm going to have to give him Romans 5.18 so he can build a doctrine on it. But that made my day. And to know that, I wish I'd have known that, when I was 10 in Christ, all will be made alive. In Adam, all die. Thanks to God, he allowed all of us to be identified with a single inclusive representative named Adam under sin so that we could be also included in a second single inclusive representative, Jesus Christ. One man's act of disobedience put us all under the destiny in Adam leading to death. One man's act of obedience leading to death by crucifixion led to life for all. As Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. Do you realize the impact of that in John fourteen nineteen? Do you realize the impact of that statement? Because I live, the righteous one shall live because of his own faithfulness. Because he lives by his own faithfulness. Because resurrection was, in a sense, a reward for his obedience to the death of the cross. Because he lives, we live. There's the song, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. I got a better one than that. Because he lives, I live. Because he lives, you live. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, what? I live. Why? Because he lives. Nevertheless, I live. And the life that I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Nevertheless, there is a life that I live. And it's a life that I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, I don't frustrate the grace of God. Paul went on to say in 221 of Galatians after that wonderful declaration in 220. So from faithfulness, God's righteousness or his saving act is revealed from faithfulness. That's God's faithfulness demonstrated in Jesus Christ, who is also God as well as man, to faithfulness, which means We participate in Messiah's faithfulness, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in us. The Christian life, as we call it, is Christ's faithfulness in us, our participation in Christ's faithfulness. It is a faith that works by love. It's the only thing that counts. Circumcision doesn't count, either as a ritual or as a label. Uncircumcision doesn't count, either as a lack of ritual or as a label. Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. What counts is a life that is lived by the faith of the Son of God, a faith that works by love in Galatians 5, 6. What counts is not circumcision or uncircumcision, not being a Jew or a Greek, not being wise or foolish, not being godly or ungodly. Those are not distinctions God makes. He makes the sun to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous and the rain to fall on the evil and the good. And Christ died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 6. So what does God the Father do? Justifies the ungodly in Romans 4, 5. Why doesn't the evangelical community get this gospel? It's not the gospel that many of them preach. Why? There is a new era of proclamation, and it's beginning in 2018. It is beginning now. It is the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation, the apocalypse of a mystery in Romans 16, 25. And the mystery is found in Ephesians 1:10. It is the mystery of God's will to sum up everything in Christ. Now, that is good news. There's nothing in that gospel to be ashamed of. Nothing. So, I didn't plan on doing this, but so be it. 
By it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is apocalypsed from faithfulness, God's in Christ, to faithfulness, Christ's in us. Just as it is written, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, will live. That's a prophecy from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. Paul already said, This mystery is found in the prophets. It's revealed in the writings of the prophets, Romans 1-2 on the far left flank, Romans 6-26 on the far right flank, right here in the the very premise verse, Habakkuk 2-4, the righteous one shall live by faithfulness. The righteous one, 1 Peter 3-18, Jesus Christ. The righteous one, Acts 22, 14, Jesus Christ. The righteous one, 1 John 2, 1. If any person sins, let him or her know they have an advocate with the Father, even Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation, satisfaction for all of our sins, not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. He was handed over, paradidomy, handed over. For our trespasses. Who's the trespasses of the whole world? If you put Romans 4.24 and 5 with 1 John 2.1 and 2. He was handed over for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Who's the our there? All of us. And this is the doctrine to which we are being handed over. Paradidomy. Same word. Handed over. The doctrine to which we have been Handed over. God handed us over to a form of teaching which we're bringing to you tonight. And it's not a popular form of teaching in this 21st century. It is not a popular form of teaching. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the shocking apocalypse of the mystery, which God has even now, by his eternal command, commanded to be proclaimed and to God be the glory. That's the last verse of Romans 16. So the righteous one will live. And guess what? Because he lives, we live. Who's we? Well, I don't know. It seems like I remember a verse that my 10-year-old grandson knows very well. All will be made alive in Christ because he lives All will be made alive. He died for all. So all died so that when he was made alive, he was made alive for all to be made alive. Because I live, you will live also. That's with a life that's divine, a life that is sanctification, that is an honor to God, that is lived by faith now by participation in the faithfulness of Messiah. There's only one good and faithful servant, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you participate in his faithfulness, you might hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, because of participation in his own fidelity. It is a fruit of the Spirit. Faith is a gift in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, faith is a gift of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, fidelity is a fruit of the Spirit. In Galatians 5, 22. Who do we think we are? Who do the Roman saints think they are? There's the weak in faith, the weaklings in faith, the strong in faith. Whereas Jeremiah said, let not the strong person boast in his strength even if it's the strength of faith. So, the righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live. That's a prophecy that's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ's resurrection. Why does he live in resurrection? Because he was faithful to the extent of death by crucifixion. Therefore, God raised him up. And when he raised him up, he did so for all. So now we're back to 15.1. We've hit this. This is for the third time now. This is the right flank now of Romans. The left flank, Romans chapters 1 through 4. The right flank, Romans 12 through 16. The center to which we push is a double center. Just like a tasty candy with a double center. Romans 5 through 8. Romans 9 through 11. The double center. In the center of that center, 
There's a paragraph in Romans that really begins with 819 and finishes with 839. Ends up with the absolute security of the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is another plenary genitive. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, which is two things. God's love for us and our love for him, both of which are the gift of God. Nothing. And if you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God, that takes away almost every ounce of energy that is toward a superior honor, toward wanting a superior position, wanting a superior honor, jockeying for position, comparing yourselves with others. It's the end of group bias. It's the end of the curvature within ourselves that is the effect of sin on every person. It's freedom. It's liberation. It's transformation. It's rectification. It's everything that's good for you. So Romans 15, 1, from the other side, we who are the strong, notice it again. He's got the weak and the strong. He's got the Jew and the Greek. He's got the Greek and the barbarian. He's got the refined and the not refined. He's got all of these categories, and they all should be put in quotes because they're all categories of a binary view of humanity that he's trying to demolish and that Romans demolishes. You see, people want to say he makes the sun to rise on the good and I'm the good. And Jesus said he makes the sun to rise on the good and the evil. And the sun that rises is the sun of righteousness with salvation in his rays, says Malachi 4.2. And the rain that comes down from heaven is the word that God sends to saturate the earth. The word that God sends is the eternal logos, the word made flesh. He dies and goes into the earth. He comes up and he bears fruit, just like rain saturates the earth, comes up and bears fruit, bears bread for the eater, seed for the sower. Remember that? That's from Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, Sunday morning. So, here's another demolish category. We who are the strong are obligated. There it is again. I'm obligated. I'm obligated to the wise and the unwise, the Jew and the Greek, the barbarian. And then he says, so I'm coming to Rome. Because all those characters are in Rome. And they're in your church. But here he he has another category, the strong and the weak. We are the, we should say, the so-called strong, but not the strong man boasts in his strength, are obligated, same words he uses in Romans 1, 14 and 15, to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak. Now, what does that mean? It means that in Romans 13, 8, it fulfills the word of God, which says, Oh, no one be obligated to no one except with this obligation to love one another. He's calling forth that obligation in 13, 8, to love one another by bearing with the frailties of the weak. We have it again in Romans 14, 1. Receive the weak brother. That's the weak brother we have in here is someone who identifies certain days as holy days. He esteems one day above another, or he, she has a certain dietary restriction that comes from Torah or from a, some other Christian or Jewish type of scruples. And they think that they've got to hold up these things. And so the strong say, no, you don't. And there's the despising of the weak by the strong. And then the, the weak so-called people are judging the strong because they don't keep those days and watch that kind of kosher diet and all the rest of it. And it's just a, Paul is trying to demolish both ends of this. Try to destroy the group bias that's in both sides here. He identifies himself with the strong here because though he's a Jew, he knows he has freedom in Christ from certain days of obligation. He knows that he has freedom in Christ to eat all kinds of foods and not just kosher foods. He knows because he 
expresses that, what happened in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Peter withdrew from the Gentiles. He was eating what they eat. Jewish people came down, a an entourage under James came down from Jerusalem and intimidated Peter, so he withdrew from the Gentiles. And Paul said, you know what? You're not living according to the gospel. You're not living and walking in the truth of the gospel. So here he says, we who are the so-called strong are obligated to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak. Each one should strive to accommodate to his or her neighbor for his good. To build him up. For the Messiah did not please himself. We've already been there. I'm not going to go over this again, even though it's profound. The Messiah, Jesus Christ, did not please himself. Instead, as it is written, this is the Messiah speaking in Psalm 69 9, the insults that were aimed at you have fallen on me. For everything that was written before, that means the scriptures, the Old Testament, we call it. In the writings of the prophets, everything that was written before was written for our instruction. To the end that, through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. The hope here is the hope of the glory of God. There isn't two hopes. There isn't one hope for the Jews and one for the Gentiles. There's one hope. In Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, there's one faith, there's one Lord, there's one Father, there's one baptism, and it isn't water, it's spirit baptism. There's one Spirit, and the Spirit is the Holy Spirit, and he's called the Holy Spirit because he is the Spirit of the Holy One, and the Holy One is Christ. That's why he's the Holy Spirit. He's the Spirit of Christ in Romans 8, 9. If, no one ha- if someone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ... He doesn't belong to Christ. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you have the spirit of Christ. In Romans 8, 9. So then, verse 5. Now may God, who is the source of endurance and encouragement, grant you agreement with one another. That's what he's after in Romans. He's not after making a big doctrinal statement, and he's not after doing a doctrinal thesis or a theological discourse, although all that's in there. He's doing it so that they can have agreement because how pleasant it is when the brethren dwell together in unity. There God commands the blessing, even life forevermore. In Psalm 133. So may God, who is the source of endurance and encouragement, grant you agreement with one another. That literally means in the Greek to think the same way. Grant you to think the same way. That doesn't mean to use the same language, to be uniform in your thinking, to say the same things all the time, and to have your own little cultish vocabulary. It means to think the same way that Messiah thought, which is not to please himself. We ought to live, Paul says, not to ourselves, but unto him who rose from the dead in 2 Corinthians 5.15. But it also means, according to Messiah Jesus, means according to what he said to his disciples in the days of his flesh. In Mark 9.50, I think Mark 9.50 here is extremely significant. Especially given the fact that the Gospel of Mark didn't so much influence Paul as Paul influenced Mark, the writer of the gospel. Mark was one of Paul's team, one of Paul's team members, John Mark, the author of Mark. And there was an agreement between them and a lot of conversations. In Mark 9.50, Jesus said this to his disciples, Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So here when it says to be agreement with one another according to Messiah Jesus, that means according to his command. To have salt in yourselves so that you have peace with one another. And that means not to please ourselves, not to live in curvaturae 
in ad se, which is the curvature in upon ourselves where we live to ourselves and for ourselves, but to live outside of ourselves, extra se, in Christu, in Christ, outside of ourselves, in Christ. He lived to please his father. He says, Abba, Father. We live to please the father in Christ through participating in his faithfulness. That's what he's talking about here. So that together, in verse 6, with one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of encouragement and fortitude. He will strengthen the weak by his power. And he'll break the strength of the strong. Those who boast in their own strength are destined for a breakdown. And that's the breakdown of their own strength. As Psalm 102.23 says, he will break the strong's strength. He will break the strength of the strong in mid-course. What's an example of this? The Jewish Christian in Rome who thinks that he is special because he obeys certain strictures of the moral code of the Mosaic law. And his Gentile friend does not. So he points to the Gentile heritage of idolatry and gross immorality in Romans 118 to 32. And then the Gentile points to the Jewish Christian so-called friend. They aren't friends yet because he's pointing out to his faults. And there's a battle going on. There's, well, a breakdown of strength needs to happen. So God breaks the strength of the strong, just like Job 34, 24 says, he shatters the mighty. He shatters the strength of the mighty, not to leave the mighty shattered, but so that he can strengthen the newly weakened strong man with his own grace and strength. There's unity in being strengthened by God, and so he has to break down the strength of the strong who are strong in their own personality, their own intellect, their own morality, their own whatever it is. They're strong and they consider themselves to be strong. That strength has to be broken so that they can receive the strength of the gospel, the strength of grace, the strength of participation in Messiah's fidelity so they can live the life of faith working by love. So, he may strengthen each believer with his power. So as 1 Corinthians 2.5 says, so that their confidence will be in the power of God and not in men or in men's wisdom. 1 Corinthians 2.5. In Romans 3.19, as we've said before, every mouth in the world is shut so that the mouth of the whole world will be shut in terms of human boasting. There is none that does good. There is none that is righteous. There is none that seeks after God. They have altogether turned aside. Altogether as one, they have turned aside. So the mouth of the whole world has to be shut in terms of boasting in one's own righteousness or one's own standing before God. Here on the other flank of Romans, we have every mouth opened to glorify God and not self, to boast in God, not in self. So in Romans fifteen six, all the believers in Rome with one opened mouth are to glorify the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They glorify God because they have ceased to glory in themselves with the boasting that Paul writes to the Corinthians about that says it's a boasting that is not good. There's a boasting among you in Corinth, he said, that is not good. Some of you are saying, I'm of Paul and bragging about it. Some of you are saying, I'm of Peter and bragging about it. Some of you are saying, I'm of Apollos. Others of you are actually saying, I'm of Christ, but with the view of saying, and you're not. And so this is a glorying and a boasting that's not good, and it's the kind of thing that leavens the whole lump and ruins the whole church. And do you know how many churches are ruined by that leaven and they still meet and sing and they prance around and worship, they call it, and it's not worship? The leaven has leavened that whole loaf of bread. It's useless. It's not a church. It's been leavened with the leaven of human boasting. First, it started by quartering off people into their separate corners 
and group biases were allowed to live and fester. And then eventually everybody started living and doing what was right in their own eyes, like the last verse in Judges. They did what was right in their own eyes because they were curved in upon themselves. And therefore they lived to themselves and for themselves. And they maligned the true gospel. And then before you know it, I will spit you out of my mouth, he said to the lukewarm Laodicean church. I will remove your lampstand from its place. A lampstand is the very essence of what the church is there for. He takes the lampstand out of its place. I hate to tell you how many lampstands are out of the place in the United States of America right now. And while the church looks at the immorality of the masses of people, as if that's the reason why the, church, the country's going down the tubes, they fail to look at the church itself, which is the reason for the country going down the tubes. And it is. And it's the divisiveness of another person outside. Do you know that, some, that all the hatred that's existing politically between parties today, and it's getting worse every day, and they drum it up, and the media drums it up, the right-wing media drums it up, the left-wing media drums it up. Do you know that there's a third party instigating that divisiveness to destroy this country? And ultimately, his name is Satana. So there's a sociological, political, and national impact of the gospel also. When Romans starts getting taught right, stuff happens. Good stuff. The good leaven starts to leaven the loaf. For as the kingdom of heaven is like a woman taking three measures of meal, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit's working. In three measures of meal until the whole is leavened. That's the good side of the leaven, which is the universal restoration. The idea of one mouth appears in a significant sermon preached by Peter at the beautiful gate. Remember, the man was made whole, he was made complete, he was restored, and he was still standing by Peter when Peter addressed the crowds. And the word one mouth comes up because he says that God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets, all the prophets, not some, all the prophets from time immemorial, from the very beginning of time, from, in other words, from Genesis onwards. God spoke by the mouth of the prophets, one mouth Many prophets, meaning many prophets, saying the same thing. And what did they speak about? You ought to remember this from Revelation and from Better Call Paul. From the key eschatological text in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28. And from Revelation, you ought to remember, apokatastasis panton, the universal restoration. The restoration of all things is what all the prophets spoke about. The gospel that God gave to Paul that Paul's not ashamed of correlates perfectly with the mouth of all the prophets. And if a gospel is being proclaimed that does not agree with the mouth of all the prophets about a universal restoration, it's another gospel, friends. And there's something to be embarrassed about that gospel, something to be ashamed about in that gospel. So then... See, I'm not going to be here tomorrow night, so I can drop the hammer and run. And incidentally, don't forget tomorrow night, Phil Henry Power Gospel here tomorrow night. I hope you'll come and support him to be, to be there or be SpongeBob SquarePants. I was talking to Phil a little bit last night. His gift is to kind of lead people into this gospel. Not, he, he's, in other words, he, he gave me kind of like to look over one of his gospel messages, and we went back and forth with it. And then I realized he's talking in such a way that he's carrying along his audience and asking the right questions. It's a, sort of an evangelistic move, but it's also a teaching move. And so I'm, I'm excited about his ministry. So I hope you'll come every once in a while, every month or two. He comes, and I like him to take the pulpit, and especially now because I've been reading some stuff that I really have to get a a hold of before I continue in Romans, so it helps me out a lot. So I can drop the hammer tonight, and then, I don't know if you know it, but we've had a trap door installed here 
So at the end of the message, I just go right in it, and then I come out in Oakmont. It's weird. It's a, it's like a it's like a luge. It's really it's really something. But uh, the restoration of all beings, all the prophets together had one mouth, as it were. That's a metaphor, of course, through which God spoke of a universal restoration. And it begins at the beginning, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning is Arche. In Christ, God created all things. That's first verse in Genesis is spoken through the mouth of a prophet, probably Moses, and it announces the restoration of all things. So, on and on it went through Isaiah, through 2nd Isaiah, through 3rd Isaiah, Deutero and Trito Isaiah. The many groups of saints in Rome, once divided and partitioned off, are here urged to be early joiners in a universal chorus of praise. We mentioned that last night and again Sunday. It's a chorus of praise led by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. This universal chorus of praise to the Father follows immediately on the heels of a universal pledge of acknowledgement, a universal pledge of allegiance to Jesus as Yahweh. Every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh, God of the Bible, the Old Testament, Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. Following the Pledge of Allegiance, following the acknowledgement that Jesus is Yahweh of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ then turns to the Father. He submits all the redeemed creation and himself with it to the Father. And then he leads a universal chorus of praise so that with one mouth, not just all people that have ever lived in all the times of human history, but everything that has breath will praise God according to Psalm 150. All of creation, redeemed, will join in that chorus in Romans 8, 19 to 23. Right now creation is groaning, anticipating that day. John hears a voice from the future of all creation praising God in Revelation 5.13. That's what we're talking about. Paul, you know what he's doing here? And this is extremely important. Paul brings this ultimate eschatological moment to bear on the present historical situation in Rome. And that's kind of like what the New Testament does. It brings the ultimate moment to bear on the present situation. In this case, it produces unity. For every tongue will acknowledge that Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father, Philippians 2.11. This is perfectly in keeping with Paul's definitive, ultimate, Last things text or eschatological text in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28, where following the subordination of all the enemies of God and and the enemies of Messiah under the feet of Jesus Christ and following the utter destruction of the last enemy, death itself, the son submits himself along with all of redeemed creation and resurrected humanity to the Father. This is when the Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, leads a universal chorus of praise to God the Father, who will then be all in all. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight. Once again, let me say this principle. Paul the Apostle brings this ultimate eschatological moment to bear on the present historical situation in Rome. And that means that that final moment, that eschaton of universal restoration, is the power of it, the pressure of it, is brought to bear today on us. It's a pressure that conforms us into the image of Christ. It's a pressure that transforms us in the midst of our situation, that liberates us from the power of sin and the fear of death. It's the 
bringing to bear of the eschatological moment on the present existential historical situation of the Christian. And I'll explain that as we go on. That's just the introduction of a note in this symphony that will explain and hit more and more in the future. In other words, Paul is urging that the not yet be realized among them now in some meaningful measure. There will be a universal chorus of praise. Start now. Joining early. Be precocious children. Join early in what will one day be a universal chorus of praise to God. So that's what I'm saying. He brings the not yet to bear on the now in some meaningful measure. At the same time, this ultimate eschatological moment is brought to bear then on us tonight, here, now. Each of us tonight, here, now. The impact of that is to take us out of the curvature into ourselves, which sin does to us, and bring us into the liberation of living outside of ourselves in Christ which is what the Holy Spirit does for us. That's why we meet. We get jarred out of our self-contained life into the life that's called the newness of life in Romans 6, 4, the newness of life in Romans 7, 6. The impact is on all of us. The impact is on each of us as individuals in our present being. The impact is unification, not division. The impact of this is a further unification, not a division of believers. The effect is an intrapsychic exoteric harmony or esoteric harmony. That's what the Spartans used to call it. Esoteric harmony, an inner peace, an inner interior tranquility, a resting in God's unrelenting, unrestricted, unconditional love for you, yourself, It's an inner peace, and it yields to an exoteric harmony, an outgoing, outward peace among believers. So have salt in yourselves. That's the intrapsychic, internal peace that the gospel brings to you individually. And be at peace with one another. That's the external or exoteric peace among believers. I think I can see by the looks on your faces I'm going to have to develop that one again. So then, have salt in yourselves, inner tranquility, and be at peace with one another, external external peace. It's also an answer to the Son's petition to the Father in the shadow of the cross when he said that they may be one as we are one, Father. The petition for peace. And so in this teaching, we see what I call a Christological reading or a messianic reading, a Christ-centered reading of Romans 1.17. The righteous one is Christ. He lives by his faithfulness. We live because he lives. We live and participate in his faithfulness as the gift of God's unconditional grace. This is balanced by a Christological exhortation or an encouragement in Romans 15.1-6. So participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is what Galatians 5, 6 calls a faith working by love, a faith that works by love. It's a faith that works by love, which makes the distinctions of circumcision and uncircumcision to be nothing at all. It destroys group biases. It destroys group prejudices. It even, when you fan it out, destroys sociological prejudices, racial biases and prejudices, divisions that destroy nations. It even demolishes those. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God to the demolition of strongholds, the demolition mostly As Ephesians 2.15 says, a wall made of hostility that was destroyed in Christ's flesh on the cross. A wall constructed of hostility. Rasantamant. A wall constructed of hostility destroyed in his flesh 
so that of the two, Jew and Gentile, he made one new humanity in Ephesians 2.15. That's what happened at the cross. That's the gospel we proclaim. And it says in Ephesians 2.14, Jesus himself is our peace who made the two one. And so what counts is a faith working by love, energized by the Holy Spirit, who causes hope to abound in us as a power greater than despair. The Holy Spirit causes hope to abound in us that is a greater power than despair. This spirit, again, and this is a pneumatological advancement for us. That means a study of the Holy Spirit. The spirit is called the Holy Spirit precisely because he is the spirit of the Holy One, Jesus Christ. That's why he's called the spirit of Christ in 2 Corinthians, or rather in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. He is the spirit of God, and in Romans 8, 9, the spirit of Christ. In Philippians 1, 19, the spirit of Jesus Christ. In Acts 16.9, the spirit of Jesus that prevented Paul from going to Asia and moved him west so that he even got the gospel to where we are today. So the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because he's the spirit of the Holy One, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. The spirit of Jesus Christ produces the unity and the harmony that the Lord Jesus Christ in the days of his flesh urged of his disciples. The peace that Jesus enjoined or commanded is the peace that he himself became for us when, listen carefully, when in his flesh he destroyed the enmity, the hostility, the group biases in Ephesians 2.14 to 15. He destroyed the middle wall of partition made out of the bricks of ressentiment, hostility, enmity, group bias, and the perverse desire for honor and prestige over others. Destroyed it, dismantled it, wiped it out. Jesus Christ, the sinless one, became sin to put away sin by the offering of himself, says Hebrews 9.26 and 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus Christ, who is God with life in himself, God with life in himself tasted death for every human being. That's the grace of God. He, by the grace of God, tasted death for every human being so that he might bring many sons into glory. The many sons into glory that he brings are those for whom he tasted death, which is everybody. I hope you're seeing this because it'll be the gospel that you have no reason to be ashamed of. It's a power that's superior to sin and to death. It's, this is the grace of God. It is unconditional and universal grace that the incarnate word is full of. He was full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He was full of the unconditional universal grace that God Extended toward humankind. This grace is the power. Listen carefully to these last statements. This grace is the power that ended the reign of death and sin. Sin and death reigned, says Romans 5, over all the human race from Adam to Moses. You say, well, then the Jewish Christians are saying, yeah, they, the, that reign ended when Moses came because through Moses came the law. And Paul says, no, when the law came through Moses, sin's reign increased in its intensity. The control of sin over humankind increased because the law being just and holy and right and good was hijacked by sin to show how exceedingly sinful sin is Sin took that which is holy and good and hijacked it for its own use. So when Moses came and the law came by Moses, sin increased. The commission of sin abounded. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. 
Oh, the depth of the wisdom of the righteousness, the, the wealth of God's mercy. His wisdom is saving, as we'll see Sunday. So sin and death reigned over all the human race from Adam to Moses. And from Moses, through whom the law came, until Jesus Christ, through whom came grace and truth. In other words, sin and death actually intensified their reign and their control over humanity and their ability to curve human beings in upon themselves. And so the reign of sin and death increased through the law because sin revealed its exceedingly evil character, its exceeding sinfulness by taking that which was holy and good, the law of Moses, and using it for evil. And that's what Romans 7 is all about. 7, 7 to 25. That's what that whole conversation is all about. But the cross of Christ, where Jesus completed his faithful obedience to the Father, here's the end coming of the message. The cross of Christ where Jesus completed his obedience, his faithful obedience to the Father, was the end of the reign of sin and death. So that now grace reigns through the act of divine deliverance or through righteousness unto or resulting in the life of the coming age for all. Romans 5.21 compared to 1 Corinthians 15.22 because you see the wages of sin is death for all. All sinned. The wages of sin is death for how many people? For all. So the gift of God is eternal life for who? For all through Jesus Christ our Lord in Romans 6.23. Compare that with Romans 5.18. By the act of one man, all the human race was condemned. By the act of obedience of one man, all the human race received rectifying, justifying life. Now that I know this, now that I've seen this, I don't dare go against it. And I know that people that speak against this in their little cliques and quarters, some of whom used to sit where you're sitting, the only reason that they are permitted to do so without repercussions is because of their ignorance and because of prayers of people that don't want them to suffer the consequences of this. Pray for those who slander you. And so... It's all through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The law intensified its own control over people. So the Jewish Christian that wants to glory and gloat over the Gentile Christian because he fulfills the law, Paul says, yeah, but that's interesting that the law you say you're fulfilling hijacked was hijacked by sin. So if you're like me, Paul said, I was blameless according to the law, but I was the worst guy that ever lived on earth, and I used my zeal as a religious Jew, to persecute God's own community called the church. So where's your glorying? Where's your boasting? And, of course, we know he takes on the Gentiles who boast against the Jewish Christians in Romans 11 and goes up one side and down the other on them. So, in closing again. The cross of Christ, where Jesus completed his faithful obedience to the Father, was the end of the reign of sin and death. So that now grace reigns as king through this act of divine deliverance or righteousness unto the life of the coming age for all. Because the wages of sin is death for all in Adam. But the gift of God is eternal life for all in Christ. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. This is a, even though it's spoken with volume and with power sometimes, this message is one that unifies and not divides. I pray for unity to enter into the church, the body of Christ, not through some human friendly gestures, but through the 
glorious gospel, the gospel of the glory of the Christ. And I pray that the enemy who blinds the eyes of the unbelieving will be defeated in our time, that this will be a new era not only of proclamation and of revelation, but it will be a new era of the defeat of the God of this age who blinds the minds of those who are unbelieving of this, including Christians who refuse to believe the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which will one day fill all the earth according to Habakkuk 2.14. Open the eyes of the people of God to see these things so that they can be unashamed of the gospel and bring it to a people who are yet without the experience of this salvation, who do not know this gospel, and to the generation of millennials and younger people who are fleeing from the church because this gospel isn't preached. May you catch them on their way out with the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which will one day fill the whole earth.